Are you an artist who sells their work online? If so, you may know how difficult it can be for potential collectors to really get a sense of how your artwork would look in their home. I know that when I managed an art studio, this was definitely a problem we ran into. But now, thanks to Canvi, this challenge is easy to overcome. All you have to do is upload your artwork, select one of over 500 room templates, and voila! Customers will see just how good your art will look on their wall. With tons of customizations that allow you to change wall colors, texture, and even room accessories, it's easy to match the aesthetic you're after. So, where can you use Canvi's room simulations? The real question is, where can't they be used? From the portfolio page of a website, to a shopping portal, to social media, the uses are endless. And for creatives using Etsy, Canvi has a built-in Etsy integration that allows users to publish their finished rooms straight to their store. Artists can also create a website directly in Canvi using a custom domain name to show off their artwork in a polished, professional manner. So, if you want to take your art to the next level and present yourself like a true professional, be sure to check out Canvi.com. That's C-A-N-V-Y.com. Give it a try with a free hobby account, and if you're hooked, upgrade to either a yearly or monthly plan. If you don't like it, no problem. You can cancel anytime and there's a 100% money back guarantee. When you're in the thick of a successful career, it's not always easy to listen to your heart and change direction. But that's exactly what this week's guest did. I'm Jessica Stewart and you're listening to the My Modern Met Top Artist Podcast. Today we're speaking with Amy Vitale, an accomplished photographer and filmmaker. She started her career as one of a handful of female photojournalists covering conflict zones. But starting in 2009, she shifted gears and followed her desire to photograph stories of hope. These days, she focuses her attention on wildlife conservation and highlights important stories that not only bring awareness to the damage their human behavior has done, but also shows the triumphs of the courageous people who fight every day for the environment. By embedding herself deeply into the community, she spends years getting to know the people and the animals that she photographs, and these connections shine through in her images. As a big fan of Amy's work, I was thrilled to get to speak to her about how she uses photography to further conservation. And I was also interested to ask about her experience as a female photojournalist and how she's using her platform to give a voice to photographers of different genders and ethnicities. We'll also talk about some of our most groundbreaking work, including her photographs showing the death of the world's last male northern white rhino, and our more recent film documenting how an orphaned elephant became the leader of the pack at a sanctuary in Kenya. Before we get started with our chat, I just wanted to remind you that Top Artist is now on YouTube. You can click the link in the show notes and head over to see some of the imagery we discuss as you listen to the episode. Also, if you're looking for a way not only to support Top Artist, but also My Modern Met, you might want to think about joining our membership program. There are lots of great perks, like ad-free reading and discounts at the My Modern Met store, which is perfect for the upcoming holidays. Just head over to mymodernmet.com membership to see all the details. So let's get into our chat with photographer Amy Vitale. We begin by discussing what initially pushed her to want to be a photojournalist covering conflict zones, and how she was inherently uncomfortable covering the stories in the way that traditional media was asking. So she decided to take matters into her own hands. Yeah, I think I actually wanted to understand why the world is the way it is and where do these conflicts come from? Why? And each one is very different. But I think that I wanted to understand the world as it is. And also, it just led me to realize how important history is and how it has shaped who we are and the world we live in and 
how do we change that trajectory? And I think that the issue I've always had, as long as we're talking about journalism, I was always deeply uncomfortable with this idea that I come in as this observer, talk about the horrors of the world and leave. I actually felt like I couldn't work in that way. We were given these you know, kind of journalism ethics and guides. And I followed all of those. But one thing we were always encouraged to do was focus on the violence, focus on the most sensationalistic aspects of any situation, because, you know, what bleeds leads is what they used to say and show all of that. What I found really um, uncomfortable and actually doing more of a disservice to humanity was the fact that there were all these other aspects in any conflict that were not being talked about. The resilience, the, the deep, profound bonds people had with one another, the quieter moments, the behind the frontline stories. And that's when I started pushing back pretty quickly. I just started sending different kinds of images and refusing to take part of it. And one real example was one of the first stories I covered, I began to realize, wow, like the pictures were taken might even be driving people to become more violent in a way. Like we were, I don't know how to explain this, except I felt like journalists were a piece of driving things in a certain direction and exploiting sort of situations. And so I started to move back away and say, these are the images I'm sending you. These are the stories I'm sending you. And it was really terrifying at that moment because I was just starting my career. But what I did discover is people are actually hungry for other pieces of the story. They don't want that one narrative. And I would write really elaborate captions to explain everything. And I discovered that um, the editors would run it when I you know, really gave deep explanation behind these images and what they actually meant. And the other piece of it was that I think that we would, in the beginning, just be asked to talk about the conflicts. But then I realized we don't offer anything more than that. And I found that we as journalists, as storytellers, actually need to go and do more than just talk about the challenges, but really talk about people that are working to find solutions to our most pressing problems. As Amy found more success in following her instincts and documenting the stories that were important to her, she stumbled upon what would become one of the defining stories of her career, the extinction of the northern white rhino. This was her initial foray into the world of conservation, and it was a story that would have a deep effect on her. Her work documenting the death of Sudan, the last male northern white rhino on Earth, changed the course of her career. She followed Sudan as he was sent from a zoo in the Czech Republic back to his native Kenya, and she was on hand to capture the deep bond that this majestic creature formed with his caretakers there. She was also there for his death, which was an unfortunate signal of the end of this species. Amy shares with us how she learned of Sudan's story and the profound effect that this work had and continues to have on her career. That was a real turning point for me. I remember meeting those rhinos in the Dvor Kralov Zoo in the Czech Republic. And that was actually 12 years ago now. And I set eyes on them and could not believe that this beautiful prehistoric animal that had been roaming the planet for millions of years had been reduced to eight animals left. Something about seeing them, they looked like little unicorns to me. They were so, I mean, they were magical. And it was just sort of meeting this 
it, it just struck me in a really profound way. And I just knew in my heart that I had to look at this and reevaluate. I had been covering wars and conflicts up into that point in the human condition. That was the moment when I started to see how interconnected everything is. And how did you come across that story? How did you find that story to even start with? Well, I had been living in the Czech Republic for before that for three years. And so I knew people, I heard about it. And I remember pitching that story and nobody wanted it. They said, oh, it's an interesting story, but you know, it won't be visual. And then I just thought to myself, you know what? I think this is the most important story of my life. I knew it back then. I had this like feeling when I set eyes on these creatures that I just had to, I knew that I was possibly documenting the end of a species. And then that kind of commitment to it led me to these really profound moments that I had access to where, you know, then I started to understand the deep bonds and the, again, that whole, I think everything is connected. And I think that's the motto of my, I think all of us understand it to some degree, but it's like just feeling the interconnection of the world we live in changes you and you can't go back once you realize it. What's really beautiful and strikes me about those images as well is the connection that you really capture between the animals and their caretakers. Can you share a bit about what you observed between them? And and were you, especially it being a, a new experience with that sort of relationship, were you surprised by what you saw? No, I wasn't surprised. I was just deeply moved by the commitment. And I also realized really, I've always focused on the connection between humanity and the natural world, because I feel like that was the piece we always left out of the story. Nobody ever talked about the indigenous people living with the wildlife. They actually hold the keys to saving what's left. And until we understand that and empower these communities, you know, they were always portrayed as the, the killers, the poachers. We need to arm people so that we can shoot these terrible people. And I felt like it was the same story that I was being asked to talk, tell when I was asked to focus on any conflict in the world. It was like easier for people to tell it in this very one-dimensional way, like here's the good people and here's the bad people. And it's much more nuanced than that. And I felt like the most important piece of the story was always being left out when I started telling the story and investigating the, the way forward. And it didn't surprise me at all. I think that these are typical narratives and one journalist starts telling this one narrative and it's sexy that way. You've got your clear hero. I hate heroes. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> that's not the way of the world. Like right, we right. are all doing the best we can. And if we can actually start to talk about who we are and why people do the things that we do, if it's understood that people are just trying to feed their families, you know, maybe we can find more honest solutions and that if you give people other opportunities, guess what? They don't want to poach. I mean, it's just, and you know, we're all part of it. Like you can't demonize one group. I mean, all of us are responsible mm. for everything that's happening on the planet. Our lifestyles, like all of this is connected again. And so all I was trying to do was shine a light 
amplify the beautiful stories and commitment. And if we want to talk about a hero, let's make these people a hero because they really are. You know, they spend more time with these animals than they do their own children and families. Mm. And it's hard. They get malaria. They have to, you know, get out in the wild, fending big predators. I just think that those stories are always a little more complex and we should move towards that and embrace it and try to give a much more nuanced multitude of viewpoints and a more nuanced view of the world. Amy was able to share Sudan's story in Time Magazine and later it was picked up by National Geographic. There was no slowing down, as once Amy got a taste of the type of work she did with Sudan, she knew there were so many other stories to tell. In recent years, she's also dedicated her time to filmmaking. In fact, she actually put down the still camera for a period of time in order to pick up the skills that she'd need to create the sort of short films that she works on now. Her latest release, Shaba, tells the story of an orphaned elephant in Kenya who goes through an incredible transformation and ends up becoming the matriarch of the entire sanctuary. And then I ended up stopping photography for a couple of years, going back to school to learn filmmaking. And then I made my first doc on climate change in Bangladesh. It just completely transformed my career. And I realized the power of it. I think that filmmaking is extraordinary in that you can give voice back to people. Like they can actually speak for themselves where I love photography and the art of photography but I also realize that people interpret pictures however they want to. But with film, there is no, you know, people can, you hear them. And I love that. And I always felt like you need to use all these different mediums together for a more powerful impact. Because you can start, you know, with that little short film, we actually just did a fundraiser. And for $10, all the money went to the sanctuary minus the banking fees. Um, we raised over $250,000 last month just doing the streaming campaign. And I, you know, that, that is to me the ultimate like reason to do this work. It's like, I want to go back and support these people who've been so generous in sharing their lives and their stories with me. They've opened up and become vulnerable. And it's like, well, let's do something with this. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. I mean, Shaba, not only the story of the elephant, but I mean, really just the story of the entire sanctuary in Kenya, which is the Reteti Elephant Sanctuary, run by, is it all women? No, it's not all women. There's, I think, seven of the women. They they need to hire more women. I'll be honest. I, I hope they do. But I think that it's really important to talk about the fact that they hired women. It's the first sanctuary in all of Africa that hired indigenous women to be elephant keepers. And what that did was transformative. It changed not just how people relate to the wild around them, but also how they relate to each other. And it's, it's really been this amazing journey to see the transformation. And even in the, all the women, they're my dear friends. I get messages from them almost every day and they are incredible. 
If you're looking for ways to skip the trip to the post office and dodge all that hectic holiday shopping traffic, why not save time and money with Stamps.com? Stamps.com lets you compare rates, print labels, and access exclusive discounts on UPS and USPS services all year long. It just makes sense, especially if your business sends more mail and packages during the holidays. Personally, I know that it's a lifesaver for us during the holiday rush at the My Modern Met store. So whether you're selling online or running an office or side hustle, Stamps.com can save so much time time, money, and stress during the holidays. Access all the post office and UPS shipping services you need without the trip. And get discounts that you can't find anywhere else, like up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. Save time and money this holiday season with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code POD for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter the code pod. Gift giving is an art, and thanks to the internet, it's easier than ever to find that perfect present for someone. With so much to choose from, how do you find that special something without hours of searching? Well, that's where My Modern Met Store comes in. Since 2017, we've been curating the best creative products for makers around the world. Whether you're looking for a gift for an artist, architect, space lover, or anywhere in between, we have you covered. One of my all-time favorite things in my Modern Met store is a planter that defies gravity. Yes, really. It's the stylish Life Levitating Planter, and it's perfect for all you minimalists out there. It has an angular white pot that hovers over a rich oak base, all thanks to magnets. But if you're lacking a green thumb, there's plenty more in our store to check out. As a listener of Top Artist, you can get 10% off your entire purchase when you use the code TOPARTIST10 at checkout. Again, that's TOPARTIST10 for 10% off everything in my modern med store. Happy shopping! When we look at the incredible imagery and film footage that Amy takes, what we're seeing is a beautifully polished final result. But there was a recent image of hers that I was curious to learn more about. Her photograph of a courageous mission to transport a group of Rothschild giraffes who were stuck on an island in Kenya back to safety won her a 2021 World Press Award. The photograph shows one of the giraffes on a custom-made barge with a cloth tied over its eyes to keep it from panicking. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. The photo is, of course, expertly framed and technically crisp, but I wondered, what was it really like that day in Kenya? It is an incredible story. So first of all, let me back up. Rothschild's giraffes are really endangered. There are less than, some say 2,000, others say maybe 3,000 left in the world. That's it. Not a lot. So there's a population of about 800 in Kenya, which is significant. And within Kenya, there were 10 giraffes stranded on an island. And what happened is they were actually out in this really remote part of Western Kenya on a peninsula. But then rains and rains and more rains started flooding this place. The rains have not stopped. And this peninsula became an island and the giraffe got stranded on this island. And how do you get giraffe off an island? Well, they built a giraffe. <laughs> so they built it. They say that as a joke, but that's what they call it. So they built this um, raft and it was like a little mini Noah's Ark there. And they had to move one by one the giraffe onto these rafts and move them off. But that is not an easy feat. First of all, Giraffes have incredibly strange anatomy, as you know. 
and it's not very easy to get them onto the giraffe. They had to sedate them, but even to sedate a giraffe is a really complex problem. They can die even in the sedation process. They have to basically dart them and then the giraffes start running. And you have to you have to capture them within 20 minutes of that drug getting into them because they could die from the drug. You have to then reverse the drug. And so they have to then, you have to get the giraffe down on the ground. And it's just like, imagine they're running through thick acacia bushes, which are these plants with very thick thorns. Some of the guys had like, they were just completely covered in blood because you're running through, then you have to put, you know, sedate them, get them down on the ground using ropes to tangle up their legs. Then they have to fall to the ground. Then you have to immediately get the reversal drug in, blindfold on, you know, put little socks in their ears to absorb any sounds. And then they have to gently guide them towards the raft. The whole procedure was just super stressful. Yeah. I'm stressed out and I'm just listening to you just talk about it right now. (laughs) It is, I mean, it is like an orchestra or a ballet dance. Like you, all the team working together and having to predict where the giraffe may go, giraffe, giraffe may go. I mean, the whole thing was unbelievably dramatic. And as a filmmaker and photographer, I'm trying to do both. Make video footage, take stills, and most of all, not get into anybody's way. But the best pictures are if you're in front of everybody and in front of the giraffe, but then they're running towards you. And I mean, the whole thing was super intense. You know, you've got tons of gear on you and running through acacia bushes. Somehow it all worked out. And then the funniest part was once the giraffe is on the raft, there was this little red speedboat that literally looked like it belonged in, you know, the Mediterranean on some, (laughs) you know, holiday makers. And it's, and this red speedboat is pulling this raft with a giraffe sticking his head out. And I, I just thought that this story was so extraordinary and quite visual. And it just makes you realize that these extremes we have to go to today to save these species And as Amy keeps up with all of the stories she's followed, we wanted to be sure to give you a happy ending to the tale of these giraffes. No, it's amazing. I just want to say I just got a message a couple days ago from one of the giraffe keeper. He he stays with the giraffes and makes sure they're all well in their new home. And he said, Amy, we have three pregnant, hopefully four months coming, we will have newborns. So there's, you know, look at that. Like that's the other piece of this. That's great news. It is. And that just nature is so, so resilient. We just have to give it a little chance and it's all going to be, you know, like that's the thing I've always been astonished by is that just how resilient people and nature are. So now it's time to turn it over to you, our listeners, in our Ask the Artist segment. We put out a call for questions for Amy and we're overwhelmed by the response. As always, whatever we don't get to here, we'll put it on our Instagram, which is at Top Artist Podcast. The first one I have comes from Sophia Yale, and she asks, how long did it take for you to get truly comfortable with the camera? Oh, I'm still uncomfortable. I'm always <laughs> learning new things. So, but the key is, no, I mean, I think that don't let that be your stumbling block. That book, you know, that the, what is it? The t- spending 10,000 hours is really true. 
just have your camera with you. Start learning how to use it in manual mode. You need to know that. And it's just practice. And it's actually never been easier to learn with digital. I remember trying to learn things with film. It would take a little while for you to process the film and you don't really remember what the settings were. So I think just practice, but don't let that be a deterrent. For me personally, I think it's taken years and years and I still am learning, as I said. Like I keep pushing myself to learn new tools. My dad, he had all these um, old four by five cameras and I am going backwards now and I'm shooting um, and actually I don't like that word shooting. I'm going to go and create images with these really old cameras where everything is manual. I have to use a light meter. And I think that it's just keeping your brain working hard all the time. And, you know, I taught myself to learn a drone and um, how to how to fly a drone. And I just realized it's important to have all these different tools, really. But just choose one tool, start slowly, and it's step by step. You'll get there. Our next question is, when you take a photo, are you looking at the visual with your eyes, your heart, or your brain? Or maybe a combination of both? Oh, all of those. I mean, I definitely, I think my eye is very intuitive at this point. I know what looks good just immediately. I mean, one thing beginners can do is just change your angle, get down on the ground, look at things from different perspectives, climb a tree, like really look at things going. You know, what I usually do is I have the camera, I'll have one eye open, the camera pressed against my face, and I will move around a space looking through that lens and kind of composing it. I always lead with my heart though. I always want to understand and empathize. Whether it's a human, an animal, the landscape, I'm looking for a deep connection. I want to feel first and understand what is the visual metaphor I'm trying to, the story in this image. Why am I here? Is it true? Is it doing justice to the people who've let me in or the animal, whatever it is. I just, I put myself through a rigorous kind of ethical test too. Am I being ethical? What is it that I'm trying to share here? And does, you know, is this doing justice and giving integrity to the story? And the brain, absolutely. You need to use your brain. You need to do as much research and understand all the perspectives to a story that you can possibly find. Talk to a lot of people. Before I even pick up the camera, I spend so much time and energy reading everything that has been written on whatever subject it may be, speaking to as many different people from opposing points of view. You know, if it's a contentious story, I want to know what everybody is thinking. And usually you'll find that there's a lot more commonality <laughs> and that maybe as a photographer and storyteller, you can actually bring those groups together by the way you tell the story, but all three of those for sure. And one last one, because we got asked a lot about it, is what are your favorite cameras and lenses that you're traveling with these days? Oh, good question. Well, it always changes depending on what it is that I'm working on. Video and filmmaking is very different, a different toolkit than still images. But I've always been a Nikon. I'm a Nikon ambassador and I've always used their gear. I think my go-to lens would be 
24 to 72.8 for just kind of a general, like you can just kind of go out and capture quite a bit of different things with that. I also like as a prime lens, the 180, 1.8 portrait lens. It is so beautiful. It's got this beautiful, you know, you can just get the shallow depth of field and it's, it's a favorite of mine. And then, you know, for wildlife, it really depends how far away the wildlife is. So you can get these big long prime lenses like a 600 millimeter, 500 millimeter, or 400 millimeter. I truthfully very often will use just the 70 to 200 or 80 to 400 because it's very light. They also have a 500 millimeter lens, which is very light. They're all about the same weight. And those are great if you're doing a lot of hiking up mountains or wherever you may be and you just weight is an issue. But if weight is not an issue, I'll go for the bigger, heavier gear. But I mean, I would say I really travel lightly. Don't let the gear weigh you down. My best advice is pick one lens and one body, have a backup that you leave in your camera bag, you know, so in case any issues happen, you can have another thing to work on because I work in really kind of brutal, harsh landscapes that destroy gear. So I do always carry a backup, but I, I think just in your hands, having one body and one lens and focusing on what you have and use it and just become really in tune with whatever choice it is that you made, because you will be able to make beautiful images. The main thing I would say also is focus on buying good lenses. That is far more valuable. The bodies are constantly changing. The technology changes, but investing in good glass really, really is a, is a great investment. It won't go away. So get the prime lenses, get the lenses that, for example, don't get a lens that has, I don't know, a wide lens all the way up to 200 millimeters because the you lose quality. So don't get those zoom lenses that have just vast amounts. I would invest in either prime lenses or some of the zooms I, I just mentioned with a wider aperture. As I wrapped up my time with Amy, I wanted to learn how she felt about being a strong female voice in the photojournalism field, which is dominated by men, and how she hoped to use her platform to raise up more unique voices so that the public can get more perspectives on what's happening in the world. At My Modern Met, we write a lot of stories about you know different photo contests, and I've written for the past few years quite a bit about the World Press Photo Awards, so nominees and winners and whatnot, and the senior work come up there. But when I put together the articles, it's you know it's impossible not to notice, particularly in that competition, the real disparity in the number of male and female photojournalists when the nomination names come up. So you know, not to fall on the cliche of how does it feel to be a female photographer, but is it something that you, you felt particularly when working in conflict areas, the sort of disparity in, in women working in the field? Yeah. The thing is my whole career, nobody ever wanted to take a risk in hiring a woman, you know, when you're not proven. And that's the thing. Like, I feel like I've had to work at least a hundred times harder <laughs> than some of my male colleagues who get the assignments because they look at you, particularly, you know, people just always assume. I remember throughout my whole career, I would apply for grants. I would usually get it if it was just written only and looking at my work. But if I had to go in for an interview, 
you know, I'm, I'm little in, in stature. And I remember being in these rooms and they would just kind of ask, like, do you think you could do that? Or do you plan to have children? And it's like, right. that is none of your business. And uh, yes, I can do it. Completely inappropriate. Right. I think things are really changing now, but I still think it's about giving opportunities. And I've recently had this happen with another project where a partner told me, yes, yes, well, we're going to hire somebody else because we need to hire a professional to do this because it was in, you know, and I was like, I am a professional. Hello? Really? Really? No, this just happened. See, that's crazy to me that it's still happening to you today, even after your Absolutely. very well-documented award-winning career. Okay. Okay. Nope. It, it, yep, it happens. And so then I think about the young women that are, or even not even young, women who maybe didn't ever get the chance to work for National Geographic or whomever, right. nobody is willing to take a risk. And I think, you know, and, and let's not even talk about gender. I think about the mis, you know, the terrible lack of representation with, right. you know, diversity in general. Diversity. And I do think, you know, part of my job now is looking out and trying to give opportunities to people that never had the chance. Mm. And I think as we have a multitude of viewpoints, we're going to have more understanding in this world. I really, truly think that it's about who gets to tell the stories too. I'm really excited because that's one of my other projects now is I will be working with 40 indigenous storytellers in Kenya in the communities I've been working with because I think that they are amazing storytellers. They've just never been given the opportunities or the tools. So let's start trying, you know. That's incredible. When I get to the point in my career where I'm able to do that, I think we all need to start making that part of how to create a more equitable world, right? Well, as we wrap up, um, I just have a few, two other questions. You know, I'm curious to know, what are the next stories that you're excited about telling? Well, I am continuing on some of the same stories I've been working on. The rhino story has transformed Mm -hmm. into a story where they're about to resurrect the species from extinction. Yes. So- I'm deeply engaged. I'm leaving in a few days for Kenya again to keep working on that story, as well as the Elephant Sanctuary. Right, because just to let people know, just to recap for people who maybe don't know, they have managed to harvest, correct me if I'm wrong, eggs from the female, the last females, and they are going to be in creating embryos with some of the preserved sperm from the males that have already passed to try and put them into a surrogate and birth some hopefully new northern white rhinos, correct? That is 100% correct. And they actually have created 12 viable embryos. And the more you start uncovering the reality, it sounds like a crazy, hopeless thing to do, but it's not. Because if you look at, they actually have incredible genetic diversity within those, with what they've saved from the the dead rhinos. And so another species, that subspecies, the southern white rhino actually went through possibly the same bottleneck in genetic diversity. So they were down to like less than 50 southern white rhinos. And now there's over 20,000 of them. Wow. So it is not a, as crazy a thing as people may imagine when you say 
Well, how are you going to save a species with 12 embryos? It's very exciting and they're playing God for sure, but it is really quite a journey and a privilege to be on the sidelines watching this one up front. Well, I mean, how incredible and a full circle moment would it be if, if you were there for the birth of these new rhinos after being there with Sudan's passing. So that it's exciting, as you said, and shows people there can be there can be positive results. It's not, you know, all always so final. Yeah, it's an interesting story to dig into. And I guess you just made me think of like two final thoughts for people. If you have something that you're really passionate about and everybody tells you, no, it's not that interesting, just don't listen to them. Follow your heart. Only you can see the story that you're trying to tell. And maybe it will work, maybe it won't, but you've got to go for it. And so that's one thing I really want to say is that, you know, follow your heart, follow your passions. And the second is stick with things over time because it may not be apparent right away. This rhino story was not apparent right away. It took me over a decade and it's now the most important story of my life. And it led me down this journey to uncover all these other beautiful stories along the way. And so that's kind of my message to anybody out there that may be struggling with where they are or not struggling, but just believe in your heart. You do know things. All of us have great intuition if we trust it. Well, that is a beautiful place to wrap things up. And I think such an important message for, like you said, can be carried over to so many things. Thank you so much for spending the time to talk with us. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing, for sharing these stories that are so important to know. And like you say, cutting through the noise of bad news, violent news, you know, what we see and that there, there is a lot of interesting stuff going on, a lot of people doing incredible things. Well, that's it for today's episode of Top Artist. I hope that you enjoyed my chat with photographer Amy Vitale and were as inspired as I was about her artistic journey and her work to shine a spotlight on moments of hope in our world. Remember, if you want to see some of the images we discussed, you can follow us on Instagram at Top Artist Podcast or go watch the episode on YouTube by following the link in the show notes. Make sure you subscribe there and you'll get a notification every time we put a new show up. You can also follow Amy's work on Instagram at Amy Vitale, that's A-M-I- V-I-T-A-L-E, or on her website, amyvitale.com. And since we're close to the holidays, you'll also want to check out her initiative, vitalimpacts.org, which brings together 100 of today's top conservation and fine art photographers. The proceeds of the print sale go towards several different conservation organizations working to make our world a better place. Join us again in two weeks with a special holiday episode of Top Artist. Myself and my co-hosts Sam Piers and Sarah Barnes will be taking a look back at our favorite moments from the show over the past year, and we'll give you a little preview of what's to come in 2022. Until then, make sure you get your daily dose of art and culture over on MyModernMet.com. See you next time.